you could see people with a touch. And, and I remember one lad that worked for me in Berkshire. His name was Robert, and he was a kitchen porter. And there was one night we were completely in the shit. And I said, who are you over here? I said, follow me down here. And we're plating up a party at 10. I said, watch this, put this down there. And I said, just do this, just follow me. And we were, I think somebody had called in sick and, and this young lad came over and he was kind of gangly, had a really bad haircut, spotty youth, you know, from Reading. And he started putting food, food on the plate and he just had this touch, Steve. It was beautiful. You know, if I put something at 12 o'clock, he put it at 12 o'clock. If I put it at 10 past one, he put it at 10 past one. And he could just put food on a plate beautifully. And it was lovely to say. It's a bit like, you know, if you go to an athletics truck and you see this runner going around like a gazelle and you think they've got amazing biomechanics. This guy had amazing culinary biomechanics. <laughs> Hello, it's Steve Ingham here and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. Now, I've spent my career working in elite sport and now also working with executives in business, supporting those people who are aspiring to achieve and also wanting to make things better. In this podcast, I speak to Olympic champions, Formula One drivers, top level sports coaches, researchers, breaking new ground in sports performance but we also know that performance doesn't just exist in sport. And that's why we value having people on this podcast from the military, performing arts, including musical theatre, ballet, and all sorts of walks of life. And we can learn from other pursuits about a better way to create performance. And I hope that you can draw out some lessons or just reflect and draw some inspiration from these conversations so that they can help you along with whatever it is that's in front of you. In this episode, I speak to Alan Murchison. Now, Alan currently runs a business called The Performance Chef, providing support to a host of sports, teams and executives in providing their food, their fuel and different flavours. Now, Alan does this from a unique standpoint of credibility as he is a chef. He is also a Michelin-starred chef. And in fact, in his heyday, he ran the 10 in 8 Fine Dining Group, where he oversaw four Michelin-starred restaurants. And this is where we centre the discussion in this episode, how he entered into the world of fine dining, the talents required both in the chef and what he took from his mentors, the chef that trained him. We also discuss the standards and the meticulous preparation required and whether the old-fashioned rollicking is fair game in the heat of a kitchen. Alan discusses the pursuit of the Michelin star, how he went about approaching it, how it took over his mindset, and without wanting to describe it too much here and now, there was an intriguing section about what happened after he was awarded it. There is an intensity to Alan's approach that seems perfectly aligned to getting stuff done, setting the bar high and driving others to success. And what you might expect from some of the portrayals that you would have seen in the media about the dynamics of operating in an elite kitchen. But at the heart of my feelings during this conversation, I could feel Alan's energy. I could feel the compulsion for better that I, and maybe this is my inclination, but I can completely see why he has led others to excellence. This is a fascinating discussion. It was fun to record, but it also made me a bit hungry whilst we were recording it too. So have a snack or two on hand. (laughs) 
All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Alan. So how are things? Yeah, no, keeping sane just about, cycling and eating really well. I think those are the, the two uh, the key elements of me keeping sane during this uh, challenging times. So, okay, you're just missing out a good night's sleep there. Have you, have you got that in line as well? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not a great sleeper at the moment, oh, actually. Right. I, I think I read a book about sleep recently and, it, and uh, it's kept me awake ever since. So, uh, yeah, sleep's not easy to come by at the moment. <laughs> you need a really boring sleep book, don't you? So, so are you training well at the moment then? How, how's it going? Um, I'm just ticking over. Um, I think like a lot of, a lot of athlete types, uh, struggled from a lack of focus and, and what's next. Um, I, I like to go away to sunny places to train in the winter, if at all possible, under the guise of work. And obviously that's not possible at the moment. So now ticking over, doing, doing probably about 15 hours a week on the bike. But a lot of it's just, it's probably exercise and fresh air as opposed to actual training, which... I don't think it's a bad thing at times. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so a little bit of a maintenance survival phase at the moment, as opposed to pushing for something, pushing, you need, you need that deadline. You need the, the event really, don't you? Rather than it just drifting out into the ether in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, especially when the weather's not so good to so either jump on the, the indoor trainer and stare at the back of your hands or you go out and get wet and cold. And I think sometimes you just need to know why you're doing it. And at the moment, you know, apart from taking nice pictures for Instagram, I'm not quite too sure why I'm doing it at the moment. But nah, we're taking over. And it's stopping me get fat, which is another good thing as well. Well, that's that's right in the sweet spot of my exercise motivation. So I can have a few biscuits in the evening. There you go. Oh. It's a very gentlemanly sort of approach to it. <laughs> Love it. So look, there's so much I could ask you about. Your experience as a chef, uh, experience as, as a performance athlete, and now uh, your experience as a performance chef. So there's loads, and I'd love to love to try and cover as much as I can from that. Um, but it'd be great if you could give us just a bit of an intro into your background. What kind of where did you start? Where did you grow up? Uh, how did you get started? Okay, so uh, from the north of Scotland, and uh, was quite sort of a, a challenging individual at school. Um, certainly not a- academic in any way, form, or means, and that was probably down to a bit of accountability and not really enjoying much, much in the way of subject matter at school. So I started working in the kitchen when I was early, probably about fourteen or fifteen, in a local kitchen, just washing up, or as they would refer to it then, I was a I was a hydro ceramic technician. <laughs> Pot washer. Pot washer. And, and I think some of the best chefs started as pot washers because it gives you a good grounding and just really enjoyed the sort of culture and this sort of sense of family and belonging of being in a kitchen because kitchens can be very, very harsh places, but they can also be like a big pair of arms. And I enjoyed the sort of warm arms, the culture, the banter, sort of locker room atmosphere of working in kitchens and, and really went from there. You know, it wasn't. I didn't have any romantic ideals about food. Um, I just got in a kitchen with a bunch of lads, enjoyed the vibe, enjoyed the banter. And then things just kind of escalated from there, really. Um, but I, I just enjoyed being in, in a team environment. And there was hierarchy. There was uh, a good work ethic. There was lots of highly dubious, politically incorrect banter. Um, but I, I just enjoyed that vibe from an early age, really. So that's where I started. North of Scotland, family-run hotel, just got in there washing pots and then just developed from there, really, Steve. And was that an outlet when you were perhaps not doing so well at school that this provided a, almost a bit of a sanctuary and fulfilled you a little bit, but you could then see yourself 
being able to take on a role, do do some work in that space once you'd left school? Uh, absolutely. And there was also progression. It was quite visible because you had, you know, there was a pot washer, there was a commie chef, there was a chef de party, a sous chef and a head chef. And, you know, the head chef had started work washing up as well. And everybody within the business that I worked in had started at the very lowest level. You know, nobody had been educated in cooking. Everybody had started off and just through hard work and basically just determination had got to the, to, to different levels. And I enjoyed that. I think, um, you know, uh, to go down the further education route was not something that was even talked about, certainly not in the in the world that I was moving in as a young man. And, yeah, I just like the progression. You could see the progression. The harder you work, the, the further up the tree you got. And I, I, and I also think the fact that we had a very strong team ethic as well. You know, no restaurant business or kitchen functions without a strong team ethic. And I enjoyed being part of a successful team. So where, where was this? Where, where was home? Uh, home was in Venice, so proper oh. proper north up up, oh, up, yeah. in the, up up in the Highlands. So it was I, good. I rode through in Venice doing Lands End to John O'Groats and got absolutely soaked. So there you go. That that links directly to your uh, cycling in the rain. So so was it um, was it a high end uh, operation or was this your local pub? Or, where, where uh, you operating? No, my, my first job was the best restaurant in Inverness, and it and. It was it was run by an Italian family, and I remember Adrian, who was the boss, and he was sort of Scottish Italian mafia, and I remember he had a gold Porsche nine four four, and that was the that was the aspiration in life, and and I remember one time he let me wash it, you know, I was allowed to wash the boss's car, but also he was a, he was a great motivator as well, Steve. You'd like this that when back back in the eighties they used to do a YTS scheme, what mm. young, thick, and stupid, and I was on this <laughs> I was on this YTS scheme. <laughs> And uh, youth, youth to, training scheme, youth training youth scheme, tra- young, 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 stupid, stupid, stupid yeah, okay, yeah. and uh, <laughs> that's how it was referred to. And you used to get paid £28.50 for like 40 to 50 hours a week. And I remember Adrian every week used to give me £10, little backhander. She think about it, that's a 30% bonus every week. Now, it doesn't matter how much money you've got, if you get 30% bonus every week, that's a shitload of money. And it was, I, I love that vibe in it. So it was the best restaurant in town. Um, by far and everybody knew of it but at that point um there was one of the sales reps um knew of a place down in fort william that had a michelin star and i didn't even know what that was back then and he saw something in me and said oh you should go for a trial at this place so i went for a trial at this place and at that point there was only two michelin star restaurants in scotland and i think there was there was a there was hardly any maybe 20 odd in the whole of the uk and I remember walking into this castle, uh, and it was called Inverlochy Castle, and it was it was the epitome of how you would imagine a Scottish castle nestling in the foothills of Ben Nevis, and it was it was amazing. You know, we had like so many chefs, the quality of produce, and at that point, I, I just sort of had like a eureka moment of like this is what excellence looks like, and I think for a lot of people that either scares them, and I, I, you probably have that in, in elite sport. You'll know more than me, Steve, is that. You know, there's more to it than just your physiology. You've got to have that mindset. And I remember going there going, God, this is hard work. You know, 80 hours a week, you know, there was no compromise. There was no banter. There was no crack per se. It was it was all about excellence. And I completely got that at the age of 18. I just thought, right, this is where I want to be. And I could see compromise in what I was doing at the time, even though it was the best. You know, it's like being a, it's like being a county level athlete. You know, you go to the county championships and you're a county level athlete. 
to go up to the next stage is going to require, I don't like the word sacrifice, it's going to require more personal investment. And I saw the opportunity for personal investment then, but it was going to involve making my life really hard. It was going to involve moving away from home. Um, but I got it and that was at 18. So I was working at the best place in town and then I wanted to go and work at the best place in Scotland. But it was going to involve quite a, quite a change in mindset to, to go and do that. All right. So let me bookmark that because that sounds really interesting in terms of your first uh, visualization of uh, and being able to see excellence in action. But can yeah. you can you rewind a, a moment there? What what are the steps? You, you mentioned that you can see the progression. Do they literally say, right, you, now you've done the pots. Can you cut some potatoes? What, what's the do they just draw you in or is the sort of. Uh, you have to actively put your hand up to say, "Do I can uh, I do some training? Do I need to go on a course to do that?" It's a, it's a really, really good point. Um, I think I did it just through hard work and probably personality. Is that you know I got on well with the head chef who was the alpha male within that environment. We we were into motorbikes, we were into fishing. There was shared interest outside work, and I think that personality connected. Um, so I think he saw something in me you know, that I had a balance, you know, you could talk about, you know, I wasn't into football, which in Scotland was really unusual, you know, motorbikes and fishing was more my thing. And I think he probably just liked me as a person, but I know latterly I would see it, you know, when I was running restaurants and you could see people with a touch. And, and I remember one lad that worked for me in Berkshire, his name was Robert and he was a kitchen porter. And there was one night we were completely in the shit and I said, who are you over here? I said, follow me down here. And we're plating up a party at 10. I said, watch this, put this down there. And I said, just do this, just follow me. And we were, I think somebody had called in sick and, and this young lad came over and he was kind of gangly, had a really bad haircut, spotty youth, you know, from Reading. And he started putting food, food on the plate and he just had this touch, Steve. It was beautiful. You know, if I put something at 12 o'clock, he put it at 12 o'clock. If I put it at 10 past one, he put it at 10 past one. And he could just put food on a plate beautifully. And it was lovely to say. It's a bit like, you know, if you go to an athletics truck and you see this runner going around like a gazelle and you think they've got amazing biomechanics. This guy had amazing culinary biomechanics. He could just put food on a like plate. It. And um, he didn't, you know, he didn't have a palate at that stage, but he just had the ability to, to, he had that touch. He had that absolute touch. So for me, it was, it was personality that probably allowed me the next step. But I've seen it in people tenacity again i remember a chap emailed uh, he emailed me he had no cv at all his name was phil fanning and i thought his, his name was a joke he had a, he had a sort of a, you know this guy was just emailed me and he had a really shit cv and then emailed me then he wrote to me and i ignored it again and then he turned up at the back door one day you know so he tried everything and it was just a really beige cv and i thought why am i going to give this guy a job and he turned up one day, he goes, what do I need to do? And I said, well, just come in and work. And he ended up being a head chef for me and getting a mission oh, star. And so there was, I think there's a real mixture between personality, natural ability, and then just tenacity. Um, so again, the, the parallels with the world that you move in are probably very, very similar. So for me, it was probably personality initially that allowed me to get that next step because this guy quite liked having, the man in charge quite liked having me in the kitchen because we could talk about fishing and we could talk about motorbikes and that was probably what got me up that first step but there's i've seen it personally many ways and honestly i i see 
in my in my mind, I see very little value in academic qualifications for cooking. Um, I think people that go to college, I still think practical work is is the most important thing. You know, if somebody's gone out of their way, so that's just purely my own view with it. I don't think there's any culinary institutes that train people, with the exception of maybe Westminster Kingsway in London, that, that actually produce people that are that are Michelin star level, world class, but. What again? We've got to think of is that's a very niche market. You know, there's, there's, it's probably less than one percent of the cooking ever done is done at that level. So, yeah, interesting. So it sounds as though that initial rapport and relationship with the boss, um, that that you had a connection that was irrespective of the profession, but that almost gave you the opportunity to be trusted in some ways, in the similar way as as your lad helping you when someone phoned in sick you probably saw something and thought actually if i'm going to if i'm going to ask somebody i need to ask somebody that i can trust to pull in and, and do that and then out of that came an opportunity out of almost necessity so they they saw something in you then did they in terms of having that touch the culinary biomechanics as it were yeah i would i would think so it's about like you know if you're washing pots and your station is always clean or you rack the pans in a certain ocd way like some people just don't see what you're mixing metal spoons and wooden spoons why would you mix them you have one there and what it just that logic just does my bloody head in you know why would you leave something messy when you could leave it clean you know and and, and those kind of those habits those those sort of habits of of cleanliness and excellence and meticulous attention to detail that can be translated towards anything right you're never going to get somebody that works untidily that turns up late that looks slovenly that you put them in a chef's jacket and suddenly they're going to turn into gordon ramsay that ain't going to happen it's just it's just it's just not going to happen whereas if you know timekeeping is one of my main gripes i hate people that are late i'm annoyed today i was two minutes late on for you like that annoys uh, you me the, you had the skype disclaimer that's fine that's all right, right. okay that's but do you know what i mean it's that it's that, that that those kind of values of you know the things you don't need is you know your attitude your timekeeping you know those are things that are just it's just respecting people's space and i think colin that my first head chef saw that you know it was just you know you were clean you were tidy and meticulous you turned up you, you you didn't talk an awful lot. You watched. You asked relevant questions, and I, I've seen that in people myself. You know, they watch a lot. They look at what's going on around them, and they'll ask questions. They don't ask stupid questions, but then again, a stupid question I always say is one you don't ask. Um, but they they've just got something about it, and you know, I, I could see that. I could I, I could see how that relationship developed from my perspective. So I'm hearing quite of order and structure and being meticulous allowed you to prevent just being unreliable in some ways as much as anything it's almost you know that that's the minimum that you need to be demonstrating and now we're looking at uh, whether you've got a flair for the art of it as well as the production yes absolutely and the the thing is with 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 cooking um there's many different types of cook there's very few cooks that are actually really good sort of managers organizers disciplinarians that are that are truly artistic and creative you know, it's, it's those two things. There's so many different attributes. So I've got maybe a handful of people that I've worked with in the best part of 30 years that I would say are, are, are creative and organized and disciplined. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a matter of we all fit within that. If everybody's creative, nothing gets done. And if everything's organized and disciplined, then it's incredibly boring. And, you know, it's, it's how any business is structured, really. You need these chinks of genius. And I would say I'm... I probably had quite a creative mind even fairly early on, 
Um, but I probably wasn't that organized. But I was always clean. I was always tidy. And I was always on time. So those, I think, are the three things that will get you into most most jobs if you've got those three attributes. Oh, diligently creative. I like that. Um, I, I tend to agree. I think we all have our different types or, or ways of working, certainly when we're under pressure. And that rarity of somebody being able to to adapt their style to suit. And, and so if everyone just plays safe all the time, then, then you, they're just going to be sort of a bit one, one uh, dimensional. Absolutely. And so what happened then? You, you've progressing to Fort William and uh, been given a chance. What, what was, uh, what happened? And so I, I was going to ask you, wasn't I, about the vision of excellence. What was it that you saw? Uh, what was it that you, that really struck you that you thought, ah, okay, that's uh, another level. I would say the one, one thing, the one summary I would say is lack of compromise. There was no compromise. It was excellence. And, and excellence looked like it was quality of produce. It was if something wasn't right, you'd do it again. Um, there was a consequence to not doing something right. Um, whereas before, a lot of rest, a lot of places, it'll be okay. It'll be all right. There was no, it would be all right. You'd end up wearing it, you know, or, or it would be thrown up the wall. And the, the lack of compromise was evident. And, and it was... It was like performing twice a day, every day. It was like you had to be on form. You had to be ready at 12 o'clock. You had to be ready at 7 o'clock. And the, the lack of compromise, you know, your personal welfare, your personal well-being w- was second. It didn't matter. It was all about the delivery of the product under pressure at a given time. And I really liked that. And I liked the fact that we also got to work with the best kit. Like, you know, we used to get turbot. We used to – I remember back then we used to have Valrona chocolate. I've never even heard of Alrona chocolate. And it was like kept in a safe. And, you know, there's saffron, there was truffles, there was foie gras, there was caviar. There was these luxury ingredients. And, you know, you'd have a portion of fish, even back then, you know, a bit of turbot. And it was like, my God, that like that's like three, that's like half a day's work for that piece of fish. And it's, I, I like the quality ingredients and I like the lack of compromise. Um, and I don't know where that came from. I have no idea where that came from. Um, what do you I mean think- what do you mean there was a consequence? So you said, you sort of glibly said that you, you might wear it as in it got chucked at you or something. But was that just continuous feedback? This this isn't good enough? Whether it's your production, <laughs> well, your, your delivery of that wasn't good enough or the product, the result isn't good enough? I love it. I love it, Steve. Yeah, it was it was slightly more um, uh, probably um, barbaric terms than that isn't, that isn't quite good enough. It was, uh, yeah, there, there would be something would be redone again. Like if you, if you made a stock or a saucer based thing and it didn't quite meet the mark, you'd, you'd do it again. You know, you'd, you'd do it in your own time or, you know, or it would be, you would get verbal abuse over it or you'd be humiliated over it. But there was, there was never a, I'll be all right. There was never that shrug of the soldiers, it'll be okay type thing. So it could be something as simple as chopping parsley or chopping a shallot. If it wasn't fine enough, you'd be made to do it again. Um, or you'd have to go down the garden and pick it and explain to the head gardener why you needed more parsnips or whatever. There, there was there just, if it wasn't going to make the grade, it wasn't allowed. And you were, you were told in quite, you know, quite strong terms why it wasn't correct. And these things were explained to you. And, I was kind of an unwritten rule, but you, you, the, the culture of the whole business was like that. You know, everybody had braggart jackets, which are really beautiful jackets. They had to be perfectly ironed. You know, your fingernails had to be tight, clean all the time. You were clean shaven all the time. It was like the army. 
I think, in a lot of respects. But then again, the guy that was running the place had come from the royal household. He'd been personal chef to Prince and Princess of Wales and had also been schooled in London and in some of the, the, the finest establishments in London. So he came from that real hierarchy-based um, business. So, yeah, it was compromised, Stephen. I think it was you would be told quite strongly why things weren't right and why they weren't good enough and why you had to do them again. And is that still prevalent? Alan, is that, um, I mean, I'm just thinking of, of drawing a uh, parallel, what we're seeing and observing in sport now, uh, where previously the hairdryer from Fergie, that type of approach was sort of, yeah, that's the way it's done. If if a, a team member didn't step up, that, that they get a rollicking. Yeah. Whereas now I think we're, we are looking, or we're certainly having a, a conversation about a more discreet way in which we can empower people, engage people, motivate them, but without that aggressive Hell's Kitchen yeah. bullying approach. What's your thoughts? It's really, really difficult. Um, I, I grew up in that environment, you know, as did you, and I'm sure you've seen things that would, over the years and attitudes towards people that you think, okay, maybe I didn't deal with it that well. And that that's just the culture and the environment you were in at the time. I think, in some respects, it's almost gone. It's almost gone the other way, and it's almost like an almost like a nanny state. And the way I look at it, you know, I've watched a lot of documentaries and I read I read a huge amount about the history of sport and things that have gone on. Would I go into that environment knowing there was going to be the hairdryer per se? I would. Would I put my kids into it? Like I've got four kids between 15, 18, 22, 23, and twenty five. Would I put them into it? Yeah. I would. I would because I think it's almost got to this point these days that everybody's a winner. You know, everybody's excellent. Everybody's great. And they're not. It's not real life. And I remember this is a I've got a couple of examples on this. I remember we had a new head teacher came into my daughter's school a while back. You no, know, so we're in Hampshire. You know, it's, it's a wealthy area. It's a lovely area to live in. It was a small school. And she she put across a concept of a non-competitive sports day. And I've never heard such bollocks in all my life. I thought, what lessons does that teach anybody about getting on? Everybody's a winner and everybody's equal. No, well, they're not. That isn't life, you know, and and, and it never went through, fortunately. And I, and I just think, I think there's a time and a place for it, Stephen. I think maybe before the old school, you know, what's the difference between bullying and banter? It's purely delivery and perception, I think. You know, so you, you and I, if you and I knew each other well, you and I could have a conversation that would be very different to you would have with a physiologist who just started in the business or a F&B manager who you don't know. And I think it's having the emotional intelligence to understand when banter, bullying, you know, is acceptable and when it's not. And mm. it's not that one size fits all. But we also I had an incident, an incident, an incident is probably the wrong way. I had a scenario that, that that came up, and I was on a I was on a training camp far far away, a couple of years ago, and it was ahead of the world championships, and there was an athlete who turned up in not the best shape, uh, and this camp was hugely expensive to do, and I remember saying to the coach, "Do you realise this athlete's got X, Y, and Z in the fridge? You know, you need to have a bloody word." And, and they couldn't actually have a word with this athlete. You know, even though we were at this camp, it cost a huge amount of money because that wasn't the done thing. Mm. You know what I mean? And you think, look, we're, we're eight weeks out from the World Championships here. You need to sort your shit out. You know, you're eating shit. You're out of shape. We've got all these resources. And they can't actually take the athlete to one side and say, look, you need to sort yourself out. So at what point do you become 
is it a nanny state stroke politically correct or I, I don't know mate I think mm. it's I think it's a really difficult balance Steve because you know when I was growing up you know people getting a clip around the ear or getting stuff thrown at them or bullying or intimidation that was that was standard it was it wasn't it wasn't nice to be part of it and also play part in it yourself you know but it was acceptable <clears throat> and it was almost the higher up the performance pyramid you went, the more acute that behaviour was. You know, when I moved south, I worked I worked in a restaurant that there was dents in the fridge at head height all over the place. You know, where if something wasn't right, our copper pan would be thrown across the kitchen and you ducked. You know, I saw people burn. I saw people whipped with cloths. I saw people, you know, I remember one young lad, an apprentice, he was making porridge for staff one day in a restaurant and he burnt it. And the head chef made them eat porridge every day until the porridge was finished to teach him a lesson this guy wasn't allowed to eat anything else other than burnt porridge for a week now that as you and i sit here in the cold light of day seems absolutely preposterous that you'd have a 16 year old kid making them eat porridge three times a day that they'd burn um i i i don't condone that behavior at all but that was the culture at the time and i think there's lessons that can be learned from it but I always think it goes the other way. Excuse me, dear chap, do you mind passing me this? It doesn't work like that in the real world. Mm. I don't think so. It's it's a really tricky one, Steve. And I think I think there's a lot the hairdryer treatment, there's a time and a place for it. That's my, my honest view. You know, I think a good old bollocking and consequences, there's nothing wrong with that. But there has to be another option because for maybe seventy percent of people that doesn't work. Yeah, it's interesting in that sense of of, of us, I think probably now all trying to find the right level, and um, at times it might swing one way, might swing the other, and, and hopefully being able to at least have the conversation. And when when you when you're in a place where you're being humiliated or threatened, that that potentially means that psychologically we're going to get people shutting down more rather than actually responding to and developing. Um, but what you're yeah. talking about there is, you know, there, there was agreed ways of working this was the way it is and you know there's a door i suppose that i suppose that's the norm that goes on um and and having that i agree with the idea of of being able to have candid conversations Mm. and and we skill a lot of people up now about how you can go about that that means it's constructive and progressive and it, it tells it straight you probably need to do a lot of groundwork for you to be able to do that in a way that is actually, it doesn't mean shouting. It doesn't mean the aggression. Um, the, the simple difference between saying you were rubbish versus the, the product was, wasn't good enough is that in its subtle shift of externalizing it, which is, I suppose, where the conversation is now going is we're starting to, we're starting to speak about this now, aren't we? And trying to find a better way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I, I always used to say when I ran multiple properties, I would always say that if the guys on the floor weren't doing the job, it was the man in charge's job to make sure they understood why. And if they repeatedly did that, then you needed to look at the individual because at the end of the day, nobody goes out of their way to fail. Nobody goes out of their way to do something wrong. People, I think as humans, we, we like to please other people. So I would always say, is it a training issue? Is it a communication issue? Or is it an issue with the individual that they don't understand the consequences of their action? And I think once you've done all of that, but that was a, a, a mature approach that I probably only learned how to deliver. Maybe in my late 30s, I certainly wasn't emotionally 
capable of delivering that in my late 20s. I just, there was one way. You give somebody a bollocking, you humiliated them, you made them feel that small and they'd either adapt to that or not. And it was probably, yeah, I was probably 20 years in management before I realized that, okay, you know, because at the end of the day, when you start shouting, you've lost control. That's it. You know, people eke off that. And, and you know, if, but it's having the emotional intelligence to understand when to use those tools. Because if you shout all the time, it just loses the impact. And then what do you do? What do you do when you've lost the impact? What's the next stage? And I think that's the thing that's really, really key. And I, I love watching any high-performing environment. I think it's fascinating to watch. I love, I love going to the velodrome. I love watching a track centre as opposed to watching the actual velodrome itself. I love watching how the whole dynamics works. And, you know, if you ever watch, say, the sprinters, the British cycling sprinters, and you watch Jason Kenny as an example, well, there's a man with ice in his veins. You know, it's like I, I've never seen a man that moves so slowly in all my life. And he's just got that equilibrium. He's just got this this this, this balance. Where it's going. Now, you imagine giving Jason Kenny a bollocking. It would be, you know, he wouldn't even know. He'd just be like, whatever. And I think it's just having the skill set, how to get the best out of people. But yeah, emotional intelligence in managers, I think, is and coaches is is key. Interesting. So we we went on a bit of a tangent there, but um, I think it was an interesting parallel. So what did you, what, when did you start to get a vision of fine dining and thinking? Actually, I want to I want to see how. I, I can develop myself and develop my craft into that? Um, I think there's a few key people. Uh, there was a, a chap, Simon Haig, that I worked with, and he'd worked for Raymond Blanc. And at that time, you know, like Raymond Blanc is a bit of a, a bit of a visionary, really. Like he's trained so many, I think it's about 35 Michelin-starred chefs have worked for Raymond Blanc at Le Mamor Saison. And he has got this culture of excellence and I worked with a guy who'd worked for him and he just had something about him he had that touch and he was my boss uh, but he was also very calm he, he, had a, he had a really good sort of man management style and I don't know he just almost felt like he was within himself do you know what I mean Steve he just he just almost felt like he had more and he'd worked for Raymond Blanc and, and he used to show me some of the stuff he used to show me like his level of detail his organisation his presentation just the detail that he used to put into stuff and the flavors that he used to produce, he had layers, he had layers and layers of flavors. You know, you talk about in cycling panache, Simon had panache with his food. It just, you know, you, you do a dish or a sauce and you think, oh, that's good. And then Simon would just take it that little bit further with a little bit more of. Can you give me an example there? Because that's, I, I, it's because I'm alien. I, I'm not, I don't cook very well. And can you just give me an example there that would illustrate it? Um, yeah, so if you were making, say, uh, a classic Bourbon, a butter sauce, so it'd be a reduction of white wine, white wine vinegar, shallots, and then you emulsify it with butter. You know, you'd take it and you go, that's bang, and that's so good. And then you take it up to the chef to get his validation. Of, oh, you just check this for me, chef. And he'd go, okay, take half of it out. And then he'd put a touch more salt, a touch more lemon juice in there, a knob more butter. Like we're talking about two, two drops of lemon juice grain of salt like literally five grams of butter and then it would just go on to another level and you taste your own and you go there and you go oh, jesus it's night and day and it just had those levels that he was able to put in and you know you thought you were good but he was always he always had something more that he could do and, and it was just those little little details that he was able to produce a drop of a heart he could do it with almost anything. You know, if you were doing butchery, you know, if you if you were doing, you know, if you were, say, 
boning out a whole venison carcass. You'd do it in seven minutes, he'd do it in six. And his would just be a little bit neater than yours. And just used to go, ah, oh, man, you know, it's just practice. And you had that craft and you had that skill and you had those levels, which you only ever see from truly world-class performers. You know, when it, when, when, when it matters, they're just able to produce those levels. And he was able to do that time and time and time again you know and it wasn't just in service so service in a restaurant is like competition for athletes you know that time that you're feeding people he was able to do that in prep in training he was able to do it all the time he was always just that bit sharper that bit cleaner that bit faster that bit more meticulous and when you thought you were ahead of him he always had that extra gear and that was really lovely to be part of that because you were always trying to catch him out and always trying to be better than him. But the bugger was always like half a stride ahead of you all the time. And was that is that trainable, though, that ability to almost deduct from the taste and the consistency what needs to be changed and almost do the computations as to what is necessary? Is it is that trainable or is that something a bit, a bit like athletes where you've got to have the intuition and the flair and and that that mindset to be able to acquire those skills i think it's trainable up to a point okay um, yeah i think it's trainable up to a point but true excellence you know people that are operating at that different level they've just got it and and you know it's but the thing is it's is it's really difficult because it's a subjective product you know, so if you think about sport, if you, if you give you an athlete and you said, right, this guy wants to be a world-class rower or a world-class cyclist or a world-class, um, you know, 800-meter runner, you could take him in a lab and you could probably work out pretty quickly whether these people had the minerals to do it. You know, you, you'd be able to do that. You're intelligent enough and you've got the, the process and the protocol to do that. With food, it's really difficult because excellence, what does excellence look like? It's really difficult in food because the best meal in the world – can be a bacon sandwich. The best meal in the world could be, you know, a grilled piece of fish in the, on the beach in the Caribbean, or it could be a 10-course tasting menu. Excellence looks different in different spheres. So I think within kitchens, it's really, really hard. So I would say it's trainable up to a point, but some people have just got a really good palate. Some people are just, they've got that that touch. And I wish you could, I wish you could, you could stamp it and you could replicate it, but you can't. And we, we saw this, you know, I'm going off on one here, but I, I wanted to grow my business and have half a dozen restaurants that all had Michelin stars. And it was really difficult to do because what would work one place, some people can't work remotely. Some people can't work under pressure that well. They might be great at a controlled environment, but you put them into competition. How many athletes have you seen have got the best training numbers, but then they come to a competition and flunk? Or how many athletes do you just don't have the minerals in training? And then as soon as you put a number on the back, suddenly, bang, Mark Cavendish is the great, is the, you know, if I think about cycling, Cavendish notoriously never tested that well. But when he was in his pomp, he was unbeatable. But he still wouldn't test well. Yeah, I think they were probably testing the wrong things. But that, that's another thing. But I suppose culturally, um, you could go to Canuck and watch some hockey being played and yeah. there'd be eight people there. Um watching and then you go to india and there are 180,000 people watching it so culturally it making more sense and that is very subjective when it's woven into that fabric yeah. um so that yeah. that's interesting and then and how does that relate to your own statement of what you now then define as excellence because presumably at some point as you're progressing through the ranks 
you're then starting to create a vision that when you're ascending to those executive head chef roles, you're starting to create a vision as to this is what I, I want to create yeah. that, that perhaps is has a unique selling point. Um, it's, this is not replication of other things. You, you're trying to, to push your own boundaries. Yeah, for sure. I think I think at that point I decided that I wanted to work for myself and I wanted my own restaurant and I didn't want to work for somebody else because I could see the restrictions of working for somebody else. You know, I could I could see the jumping through hoops mentality that you needed to do it. And I wanted at that point, I was probably late teens, early twenties when I knew I wanted to do that. But I then I had to move down south, so I moved from a very comfortable environment in Scotland to a really uncomfortable environment in the south of England, um, which was really hard. It was a big move for me because, you know, literally, uh, and I'm, I'm, I, this is not a romantic ideal. If you work at Inverlochy Castle, you literally would be stood working on a bench, looking down a glen. You know, you've got Ben Nevis at the back. You've got a loch at the front. You're looking down towards the Isle of Skye. You've got these amazing sunsets. You've got a local fisherman will turn up with a wild salmon at your back door and you pick wild mushrooms in the garden. It is literally as <laughs> idyllic as it sounds. It's amazing to then moving to bloody Reading in the nineties, which was just horrible. You know, it was expensive. It was, you know, there's nothing, you know, you've never said, I tell you what, let's go to Reading for the weekend. It's like, and it was a dive, you know, it was just, it was, it was just horrible. And, but I knew that if I wanted to get on, I needed to go to a, I needed to go and learn from the best. So I moved down south to learn from the best. And, and that's really what I wanted to do. And, and and that had a timeline. But the success at that point was having your own restaurant and having a Michelin star. That was that was what it looked like for me. And I wanted to have a Michelin star, which is ridiculous. You know, it's a, a subjective guidebook that's written by anonymous inspectors. And I wanted to run my own business, but I had no idea about financial management, people management, the skill sets required to do that. All I saw was the end result. And I had no clue what went on behind the scenes to get that. None whatsoever. I just wanted that, 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 that sort of uh, accolade to my name. Why, um, why do you think you then started to focus on the Michelin star? Was that simply that you could see that that was the pinnacle of the environment that you're working in? Yeah, it was. It was what success looked like for me at the time because I was working in that environment and success looked like a Michelin star. It looked like no compromised. It looked like aspirational food. It looked like taking people's breaths away. I, you know, and I remember when I set my business up in 2001, you know, you always have these mantras and these slogans. And I said, what did I want to do? And I wanted to exceed expectations, leaving people wanting to return. That's what I wanted to do. And that was done in many ways. Um, it was down to the linen. It was down to the quality of the paper on the on the menu. It was down to the delivery of the food. It was down to execution. It was the warmness of the staff. It was the education of the team. It was just that whole cultural thing, and that's what it looked like, Steve. It looked success looked like having a Michelin star, and every every other component, you know, the compromise on your your own personal well being, the well being of the team. That was almost like a secondary thing. That's what I, I want a Michelin star, and I'd almost do anything to get that star, even though it was a subjective product. I would almost do it. That that was that was a view. And so, talk me through your approach to that then, because this isn't about so. So, if a Michelin star is like an Olympic gold medal, uh, you don't have a date with destiny, do you? You don't. I, for, correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't know when somebody is in assessing you, so you're going to have to perform at a high level. All the time. Is that right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you know, I think in some respects, Olympic sport is probably a little bit easier because you've got, you you know, you know, because you've got a clearly defined date, you've got a set of metrics that you can work to, you know, what everybody else is doing. And, you know, these are the dates and you work backwards. You know, it's going to be this date in August. You need to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And if you, and these are the things you need to do along the way. So in some respects, getting an Olympic gold medals, piece of cake. Oh, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Hang <laughs> oh, on yeah, a minute. Yeah. I think, I think we'll yeah. have to, or it could, you could go the other way around. But it would be a pretty weird situation in sport if the inspectors went out into the world to deem whether you are worthy of an Olympic champion based on your training, maybe. It would be really interesting, though, wouldn't it? it would imagine, be, yeah, imagine, imagine sitting down at a truck on a Tuesday night and going, yeah, he's just pumped out some amazing 400s there. Yeah, it would be really funny. So it's, it's yeah, you, you're constantly being assessed. You you know, if you think about it, if you walk it, and I used to use the man, what the man where cuts is on, they used to do 80,000 people a year. And you arrive and you get given seven canopies. Okay, so you've got seven chances to get that wrong. And then you sit down and you get given a choice of 12 different breads. All right. So you've now got 19 chances to mess up before they've even had a starter. And then the starter, you know, and then people will have between a seven to 10 course menu. And I think if every dish has got 10 elements on it. So we're now into the hundreds of things that can go wrong times 80,000 people. 365 days a year. So if you look at it, and that's it. So I could give you an amazing meal, and then you have some uncooked bread dough. You've lost your star, or you don't get it. You know, and it's it's really subjective because you don't know when they're coming. You don't get feedback, and it's based on your perception of what excellence looks like. That's ultimately what it's done, and that's based on years of working in that environment. So let's like I say, let's set a scenario. So you suddenly tomorrow have a funny five minutes and right say, I'm going to set up restaurant Steve Ingham. I'm going to open it up because I really like food. <laughs> suddenly, you, really <laughs> stupid idea, but a go really, on. Go on. A really yeah, good way. So you do that. If you open that up, what what Michelin would do? They go right restaurant Steve Ingham. Where's this boy work then? What's he done? And then you say, well, you know, I'll watch MasterChef and I've got a couple of Gordon Ramsay's books and I like Nigella Lawson. Mate, they ain't going to come near you. Whereas if, 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 say, for instance, somebody that's just spent 10 years working for Gordon Ramsay at Hospital Road suddenly said, right, I'm going to get my pub in the Cotswolds and I'm going to open it five days a week. Suddenly they go, right, OK, this, this, this guy's got some pedigree here. There's, there's, this is going to be worth a visit. And you could have as many visits. So my understanding of it is you'll get as many visits that they need to make to make a decision. If they've got any doubt where you sit within the ratings, you stay where you are. So if you've got no Michelin stars and they've had six good meals and one bad one, you stay with no Michelin stars. Or if you've got two stars and they've had 10 great meals and one wasn't so good, they might give you the benefit of the doubt. But there's no set criteria. It's all about the food on the plate. It's about seasonality. And they'll always say to you, cook for your guests. Don't cook for inspectors. Cook for your guests. That's what you've got to do. So it's it, in some respects, it's a really difficult, you know, it's it's a moving target and it's subjective. So it's it's really hard, to be honest. You know, you I've eaten some amazing meals that haven't got Michelin, that, that have been non-Michelin stars. And then I've eaten some other ones. I've gone, this is just a bit beige, but beige is safe. You know what I mean? So I think that there's almost that rule of you need to get a star and then you've got to maintain it. But it's assessed. You could have six to eight inspections a year. The guidebook comes out once a year. 
you get no feedback. Literally, you now see it online. It's not like you get a press release saying, oh, well done, you've done brilliantly, we love these dishes. It's just you get a ticker, you don't. That's it. So, but the impact it has on business is huge, mate. Like absolutely off the charts. Like literally, you, you're talking forty percent increase in business if you get a mission star. It's huge. Mm. And credibility, for credibility. You know, and if you think if you're working for somebody, so again, you imagine if as opposed to opening restaurants, Steve and you go and get a job as a head chef in a hotel. And you get a rest, you get a star for that. Your value has increased. So if your value is probably increased by forty to fifty percent. So if you're a non-mission star chef, your value in the marketplace, as opposed to a chef with ten years experience or ten years of actually having a star, is invaluable because it adds credibility and kudos to that that team. Again, it'd be no different at world tour level. You know, if if, if a world tour team signs somebody that's got grand tour winning palmares they're going to be earning a hell of a lot more than somebody that's got potential because potential has a price having a proven track record has also got a price which is normally double what potential is and it's exactly the same in cooking you know if you've got a star and you and then restaurants or hotels or anywhere can market it's a michelin star michelin star chef not somebody that's worked in a michelin star restaurant a michelin star chef that's got value. So your your own value is increased. The value of the business is increased. Your ability to charge people money is increased. The perception of excellence is increased. You know, it's about like if you've got a wedding anniversary or an event, I'll take you to the Michelin Star restaurant. That's something special as opposed to the dog and duck for a two-course pub lunch. It's not got quite the same kudos. There's nothing wrong with the dog and duck. There's a place for the dog and duck, but it's the same sort of thing. So... Okay, so that's interesting then. So how did you then start setting out towards that? Did you start creating some ideas of uh, the meals and or the, the menus and so on? Did you add, did you benchmark against what other people were doing? How, no, how did you approach it? No, no, no not at all. You're, 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 that's far too logical. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work. I was given an opportunity. Somebody phoned me up and said, I bought a property. Do you want to do it? It was as simple as that. It was somebody who'd made a load of money in tech. They needed to avoid paying capital gains tax. So they bought a building and said, do you want to run it? I want a, I want a mission star chef. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. And then I rapidly, that went from that to setting up my own business because I recognized I was unemployable. And I believe that I've got a, a, a belief that some of the best people are unemployable within businesses. And I I got to the point I recognized I was unemployable because I believed in my own view and my own opinion more than the people I was working with. And that's, that's quite a sort, of, a sort of eureka moment for me as I thought, no, I actually think I can do that better. So I wanted to do it my way and I would live and die by those decisions. So it's again, if I said to you, if I span this around and interviewed you, I'd say, okay, Steve, why did you set up supporting champions? Why aren't you working for a governing body with a safe wage? Why, why aren't you doing that? Then you go, well, because I think I can do something myself that's better. I don't, you don't need to answer, but I'm thinking, why aren't you working for mm. the Australian Institute of Sport? Why aren't, why, you know, you get a safe salary or why aren't you working for the Chinese, Steve? You know, or why aren't you working for, you know, <laughs> why, why not? Because well, I've they, been there, done a few of those. So. Yeah, but, but, but why now? <laughs> oh, sorry, I thought you were asking an answer. Yeah, I yeah feel but, like but I should if you be, think about it, exactly, I'm nervous now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got you. I'm spun it around. But you think about it. So why aren't you earning six figures, safe money every month, and somebody else worries about paying the rent and 
the money for the food on the table or paying the electricity bills, why are you doing it for yourself? Because you know you've got something that's unique and sellable and you trust your own judgment to do that. And that point for you probably came at one point, you think, you know what, I've done with this environment of working for other people. They got all the credit and I'm doing all the work and I've got all the ideas. I'm guessing. That's where I came. I'm guessing. I'm, I'm like, telling you. It's you? very nice of you to throw it over to me and psychoanalyze me very precisely. But um, I'm keen to find out what, so you getting on that course. So I'm hearing that you're potentially disruptive or you want to be accountable for your own decisions. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. But but you, you've got to kind of take a punt on this is what I reckon is going to get me to the Olympic gold medal. Uh, you are 100% right. Yeah, absolutely disruptive. Wanted to take a punt. Um, I, I, you know, nobody that, you know, I, was, I wasn't bothered about risk. You know, risking and losing everything, so to speak, was not something that, that bothered me. Um, and, I, and I wanted to take a punt. I was disruptive. I thought I can do that better. I, I don't want to work with these people anymore. And I wasn't a lack of respect. I just thought I could do it better. And I thought I knew enough about the system and the process that I could I could manage expectations of myself and the team. I also think I was at that point I had very strong leadership values. I had great ideas about how I would do it differently as a leader. Um, I think historically I'm a far better leader than I am a manager. So I had great ideas about how we could grow the business and cultivate the business. And I took some really good people in with me initially. But that's what I wanted to do, Steve. I was disruptive. I think I was borderline unemployable because I trusted my own my own judgment more than other people. Um, not that I didn't have respect for the people that I worked with, but I just think I'd stopped learning in those environments and I wanted to learn by my own mistakes and on my own merits. And that's why I thought, right, I'll go and do it. And I set up my own business and thought, right, let's do it. And that, that's off I went. And I, I never looked back, but an absolute trail of devastation from a personal perspective behind it, you know, like the the, the personal side of it was was absolute carnage you know losing marriages and you know all sorts of stuff like if i think about how i conducted myself as a human being to get to that not a very nice person at all really to be honest um but it was all about this goal it was this goal and i think you'll find a lot of high performers certainly chefs have got a trail of personal devastation behind them just because of the nature of that no compromise thing. Because the hours are horrendous, the environment's hell, but the pressure's horrendous. I remember when I, you know, you'd come home and you'd talk to your kids the same way as you'd talk to like the chefs at work. You can't talk to people like that at home. You know, they'd be barking orders at the kids, you know, and and even now to an extent, I still do it a little bit. I sort of catch myself, you know, like Vicky cooked broccoli for dinner last night and it was it was overcooked by about 30 seconds and one just quite right and I was like you know it's nine o'clock at night she's cooked dinner am I gonna die in a ditch over that bit of broccoli I had to bite my tongue because I knew it wasn't right there's broccoli with a bloody cottage pie at nine o'clock at night it was just like it's not right though is it Steve oh, you know? Vicky cooking, I know, I know, cooking I know. for you you must be an arse to cook yeah, but, for oh no I, I am an arse what what so um so can I ask you then about some of that um I suppose disruption in life for other people and and compromise that you've made that trail of devastation you talked about is you know, would you in hindsight would you trade it again would you do it again would you make you, you can obviously change the way you might do it along the way but would you swap the success for the Pro- the experience Pro- probably not no probably I wouldn't um, I made those decisions myself and 
I think I think I learned a lot from doing that, and I, I'd rather try and fail than not try at all. And I, and I hate apathy. I think apathy is probably one of the least attractive traits. I hate people who've got potential and never bother. And, and again, I'm sure you've seen it a thousand times that somebody's got something, and I just don't. They don't put themselves on the line. I, I I quite like being uncomfortable in respect of I quite like putting myself think you know let's just give it a crack and see if I can do it and I'd, I'd like to try and have a crack and then you know as opposed to thinking what if I don't really like what ifs I'd rather mess it up a hundred times than think what if and I very much have that attitude and you could say that's reckless or you could say it's kind of part of you but it's also maybe not just that but I also I think you've got you've got a timeline for that because now at the age I'm at now the consequences of my actions are quite 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 clear and that's why I think you know there's probably a reason why a lot of elite world-class performers are quite young because they don't understand that they don't have that fear they don't understand the consequences of their actions and I was very much like that like let's open open a restaurant you know with a young family how the hell are you going to do that how are you going to work 80 90 hours a week and like, I look at it and I'll be honest with you my older kids used to come at the restaurant and they'd be sleeping in the office floor. That's not something I'm proud of, but I wouldn't compromise service. So my kids would come to see me on a Saturday. I'd, I'd, I'd divorce from the mum, and they'd sleep on my office floor, Steve. Well, that's disgusting. You know, they'd sleep, literally, I'd put an iPod upstairs and say, right, I've got to go downstairs and do service. They'd be above the restaurant sleeping on the floor. That's quite, un- that's quite uncomfortable to hear that in, yeah. in that sense of, uh, I, I'm driven, um, I, I've... I've made compromise in, in my life and, and certainly, as you say, perhaps being able to do that and trade that earlier in your, in your twenties, for example. Um, but what was dri- do you, can you look back and think about what was driving you besides the end goal? What was the conversation going on in your head to say, no, that's okay. That decision's all right. Do you know what? I never overanalyzed it. The ends justified the means. I, the, I, I actually honestly, and yeah, I'm going to sound like a complete, a complete dick saying this, but I never thought about the impact on the kids at that time. It was all about the end result. That was all it was about. And it was almost to the point, and I'm saying that now, you know, I was, how old was I when I got a star? Oh God, 2001, 2002. We're talking 18 years ago. So I was, I was in my early thirties. I never understood Steve, the consequences of what I was doing. I didn't think about the impact it was having on the ends, whatever was happening, the ends justified the means and, and, and uh, you know, that, that's a horrible, horrible thing to say. But I didn't think about it. I just thought it was all about the result. I was only interested in the result. And, you know, if the kids came up, I've, I wouldn't take a Saturday night off to spend it with the kids. Never, never, ever in a million years. But then again, recently, I've been on, I've been on training camps ahead of major events where you've got senior coaches who've got kids. It's their birthday, their school holidays, and they're on a training camp because that's their job. And it was also, this is me, I am a person, and I was unwilling to compromise for anybody or anything. And you could say, what is that? Is that motivational? Is that inspirational? Is that good leadership? Or is that just being a selfish arse? And if you think about that, how many of the, uh, the athletes that you've worked with are, you know, what's the difference between being selfish and driven? That, that absolute focus and that was exactly where I was mate it was just that absolute focus that I, I, I wouldn't take a Saturday off I wouldn't take a birthday off I wouldn't take an anniversary off never I just wouldn't do it it was all about that delivery and 
I, I never overanalyzed it. I, mm. I do now. You know, I do now and thought, Jesus, I got that so wrong. You know, I got that so, so wrong. But at that time, that was the most important thing to me. And certainly I can, I can sense that in, in sports people and, and feel that intensity. Not always, not, mm. certainly not always. And it does, it's not pervasive. So it's perhaps uncommon that that self-focus um, is, is a known observation. I think actually increasingly that the, what we can see is that probably with the advent of modern support teams is that isn't, it's not just about the self-focus that a high performer needs to tune into being much more collaborative and developing synergistic relationships with people because they can start to clue in. It's, I suppose it, it's, in some ways it's a byproduct of being selfish. If I collaborate with these people, if I have a constructive relationship, I'm much more likely to succeed. Yeah. And so it's not just the 90s definition of those focus sports stars that we probably grew up watching and, and admiring yeah. where it's head down. I'm going to knock everything out of the way until I get to the goal. Now, probably it's much more, if we can harness the team, I'm going to be much more successful. Yeah. And I can sort of connect that with some of the work that we do in business and some high flying CEOs who, who probably attach to much more of a calling and a, res- and a duty and a responsibility of uh, of what they're doing for their business or that they're trying to create. Um, yeah. Did you have that sense of, of connection with the purpose besides the Michelin star that, that about excellence and about creating that environment? Yeah, I would say so. I think um, I, I thought I led by working harder, compromising less than everybody. And that was the key message that I want to put across. I, I live 40 minutes away from my core business you know, so we used to start work at 6.30 on a Tuesday morning. I'd be in the kitchen at 6. So by the time the guys came to work, they were walking to work, I'd be playing like the Proclaimers or or, or the Communards or, or something. Honestly, I used to do a, or S Club 7 at full blast at 6 o'clock in the morning. So I was there before them. I was working harder than them. I got up at 5. They only got up at quarter past 6. So I was stronger than them. You know, I, and, and that was a kind of mindset I had when I was looking at it now going, you're absolutely mad. Whereas uh, this is one, the one benefit I think we've got of this lockdown and people working from home is I think that, that hopefully we can break this circle of working harder and work smarter. And I was very much of the working harder, leading by example, first in, last out. You know, I'll do it. That was the way I did it. And I expected everybody else to do that. And I think nowadays, you know, you, you talk about the 90s, you know, and looking up to people. I just think there's a better way. There's a better way of doing it. At that point in time, I was just making the decisions based on on what I felt was right. Um, and if I was, you know, that's why I used to get really pissed off if somebody would turn up late. I've dri- I, I've driven to pick my kids up. My kids are asleep above, and you've turned up late. I used to go nuts, absolutely nuts with people like lateness. I would go, I would go nuts. I go, no, no, I, I, my kids are asleep in the office and you, you're turning out late or you're compromising my, you know what I mean? I would never use that, but just that was a mindset that I had. I used to get so pissed off. Um, but I've seen the same thing with other people I work with, but I was following, I was taking those bad personality traits from mentors or people that I'd work with, like, you know, again, I'll, I'll go back to Raymond Blanc. Like Raymond Blanc's got a, a trail of devastation behind him from a personal perspective, um, but it's got excellence within the kitchen, and, and that was almost 
that collateral damage was almost an acceptable part of being a good chef. So, so irrespective of perhaps now this realization that, that we can now think about doing this in a better way. Um, you, what I'm taking from that, from a leadership point of view is that you are setting the standard, regardless of what interpretation we might now put on that standard. Yeah. You are setting the standard. You are living by the standard. And it meant that everyone else could, could not look at you and go, well, I'm not going to do it because you're not doing it. You are living it. Yeah, absolutely. 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 That's what I was doing. I would say I was, I was leading by example and I, I was, I was trying to do what I thought was best at the time for the business and for the people within the business. That, that's what I thought. And the time I recognized that, that I no longer wanted to do it was when I started to compromise when I was taking time off or, you know, I'll tell you what guys, I'm going to come in for service. I'll come in for 12 as opposed to being in the kitchen at eight. And that happened probably late thirties. I just started to, I just didn't want it as much anymore, you know? And that's when I realized it was a time to get out, Steve, because I didn't want to be one of those half-assed chefs. I didn't want to be one of those chefs that lost the Michelin star. I didn't want to be one of those. And I, and I didn't want to be one of those that guys go, oh, the chef will be in at 12. I, but I became that person and I fell out of love with the, uh, with the, the whole the whole process of it and, and and that was you know i was ready to retire for want of a better word but i didn't want to go and then do half-ass cooking so i didn't want to go and get a pub or a compromise because for, for me it was either michelin star or nothing that was it i didn't want to be an amateur performer on that screen and as far as i was concerned if i didn't have a star a michelin star to my name then that was failure i didn't want i didn't want to i didn't want to do it recreationally or for a hobby or at a different level, you know, because there's different levels within sport and there's different levels in cooking, you know, and like I was working at, in my mind, that world-class premium level, that was where we were. And I had no interest in playing club level. I had no interest in, I had no interest in doing that at all. You know, I had no interest, there's not enough money in the world that would get me to go and work in a three-star or four-star hotel pumping out brasserie food. At, that's you know, so, so, okay, that's a couple of interesting points there about you falling out of love and and potentially attaching your self worth um, absolutely to yeah. to the Michelin star status, but can can we need to we need to fill in a few gaps there? Go just about how did you get? What, what was your interpretation of how you got to Michelin star level? What what, what were the nuts and bolts? If if an athlete's training doesn't go well, we can measure that. And we can give them feedback. You're not getting that feedback. So dis- despite the playlist of proclaimers coming out an S club, what, what was the process of you making that progress to Michelin star? I think it was constantly assessing what we could do better. And, you know, I love, you know, all the, the you know, when team sky talked about, you know, marginal gains and everything. And I would all, I remember we were, you know, we were always talking about how we could think, make things 1% better all the time. And the thing is with food, you know, if you do a lunch service, you could do 30 portions of smoked haddock risotto in one service and everyone would have to be consistent. And, and it was just a matter of how can we always make it a little bit better? How could we reinvest? How can we spend money? And I, I would always have the benchmark. And again, you could use this in any high performance environment, spending money. Is it going to improve? the value of the business is it going to improve the balance sheet is it going to uh, is it going to enhance the experience of the end user or is it going to save us money now those were real key things so if you think about it do we spend 
five grand on on a plate on a load of plates well is it going to save us money make us money increase brand or increase your experience as a customer as a client it's about like if you went to any high performance environment say i've got a bit of tech it's going to cost six figures right what's it going to give us it's going to give us a second over 1500 meters it's going to give us over over the pursuit it's going to give us one second right we'll do it with food we always used to do that and it was that constantly how do i make it better so i would say Constantly being assessing, assessing yourself, employing really good people. I used to bring brilliant people in. I tried to bring in people who could add something to the business, whether that was intellectually or ethically within the business from a work ethic point of view. Um, and then just constant improvements. How could we how could we make every every menu cycle, as in spring, summer, autumn, winter, how could we make the food just that little bit better? Um and enhancing the guest experience, like that, that was it. It was never about making money. Uh, and then it got to the point also, I didn't care about reviews. Like, you know, if you got a bad newspaper review, you go, we're full lunch and dinner. Who's wrong? You know, TripAdvisor is the worst thing. Imagine having TripAdvisor for athletes. You know, they run a PB, but I tell you what, they look like a donkey, three-legged donkey. It's just like a dumb work. Like TripAdvisor, you've got members of the public who haven't got a clue telling you what they think about your food. Like, I never gave out any credibility at all. I just thought that's just ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Um, so I got to you get to a point within the chef world that you actually stop thinking about what people care. You just if your restaurant's full, what does success look like? If you're full lunch and dinner, that's it. And I, I remember Michelin coming to me one time and they they let us know. They used to make you know about maybe once a year they were in, and it was uh it was a Tuesday in Reading. And it was, I think it was March. It was a shitty day. And the, the Michelin inspector said, I couldn't get parked today. The car park was full. He goes, that's my wife, I think, is it? I was like, yeah, how are you doing? He goes, 40 for lunch, 40 for dinner. What, on a Tuesday? Yeah. He's like, happy days. That's what success looks okay, like. You so know. reviews, TripAdvisor is not helpful, but word of mouth and uh, and very specific voices in that review space. absolutely i think initially when you start off you want that adulation from the general public i remember getting a review in the guardian and the telegraph when we first opened one was brilliant and one was really bad like really bad like literally couldn't have written a worse review i was gutted i took it so personally but then i realized the journalist who did it john moyer I remember Named I'm, I'm and still, shamed on the Supporting yeah, Champions I, I, podcast. I'll bloody tell you. But she used to write a shit review on everybody. So actually, after a while, I've got that kind of kudos that she she hated fine dining. She hated Michelin Star. She hated all of that. And, and I was like, yeah, I've made it. But it took me about three or four years to get over that review. I could literally, verbatim, giving you word for word, I I, I wanted to kill her. And, um, but it was kind of like a badge of honor that we got slated by John Moyer. It's quite funny. Um, so I think initially you want that adulation, but after a while you start to believe in your own performance and being full is better than almost what anybody said. But the Michelin stars are really weird one. Like you'll get people, you could speak to a hundred chefs, Steve, and the ones that say the Michelin don't matter are the ones that have never had a star. I'll tell you now. It's about like anybody that says, you know what, I, I don't I don't want to represent Great Britain. doesn't bother me. Invariably, it's because they never have. And and once you've got it, it's almost like to lose it, you know, like there's the odd anomaly again, like somebody like Marco Pierre White, who was three-star Michelin chef, youngest chef ever to get three stars, famously said they didn't matter. But he'd been there and done it. And I think 
that that was the only thing that mattered. But the process was constant evaluation. How can we make it better? How can we make it sharper? But also your, your food evolves as well. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, you have a, a confidence thing. I've got a coffee being delivered, Steve. This is really important here. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you That's it. Thank you very much. And um, so but I it think wasn't thirty seconds too overcooked. Uh, do you know what? The actually cremas on it's really really nice, so she can get get away with that. One. <laughs> it's, it's a bad <laughs> constant reviews. See, oh, no, so the crema's good. I'll give yeah. her that. I'll, yeah, I'll yeah, nothing about Jan Moyer. It's your own reviews that are coming out here. Yeah, but, 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 but better never stop, Steve. Does it exactly? Better. I'm sorry. I'm not going to be selectively excellence. Excellence not just for the weekend. Um, but it's it was one of those that it was constant evaluation, and then then you get to a point as well that you have a confidence to do less. Just let just do something simple and i think some of the most confident cooking i've ever seen has been at the highest level uh i remember eating in ducasse in monte carlo and at the i remember it's a three-star michelin in casino square and there was never more than three elements on the plate but they were perfect there was nowhere to hide there was nowhere it was just excellence and i remember the best dish i had they took wild strawberries that had been picked this month that morning in the south of france and they took them to table in this beautiful golden pot and they warmed them up and they just poured them on a plate and they got some uh mascarpone sorbet the de rocher which is like a beautiful 100 quenelle and dropped it on the top so mascarpone sorbet with warm wild strawberries my god perfect but i tell you one thing if those strawberries had been picked a day earlier or if they'd been overcooked by 30 seconds, or if that sorbet had just been overturned by another 10 seconds, or the fat ratio hadn't been just right, it would have been shit. Would have absolutely shit. But it was perfect because the fat, the mouthfeel, the hot, the cold, the warm, the, 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 the way the strawberries were picked, the delivery of it, the guy, the maitre d' was just warming it, not a second too long, not a second too late. You could just tell because the fruit just started to bleed ever so slightly. So cells within that wild strawberry, and bear in mind, they're that size, they were just starting to break down. But they weren't mash, they started to bite. That was it. It was two things. All right, but, stop it, stop it. I was already hungry when you mentioned bacon sandwich about half yeah, an hour ago. Yeah, so so it was for us, it was just that excellence and how do we... How do we just constantly en- enhance that guest experience? But it was a thousand things. You know, it was, you know, we simplify the menu offering in some respects. We, we you know, we speak to our guests. Um, yeah. And it was just that bench, those benchmarking was, were, were the people happy? Were you happy with it? And, and it, But it's really hard because it's so subjective. It's really subjective. And, and then, so take me to the moment that it gets awarded and... What, what happens after that? Um, famously, a lot of Olympic athletes, when they get the Olympic gold medal, they, they kind of go, that's a relief. Or, uh, now what? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think for me, I got to one of those uber elite mindsets, which are quite rare, that I thought, right, how do I take it to the next level? I never got that that drop-off. I never got that sort of almost hangover off it. I was like, right, okay, how do we move things on? And I kind of went down a mindset, right, I've got a Michelin star here, right, this is great, fantastic, superb. I never celebrated it because I just thought, and, and again, it's what does success look like? And you'll be able to relate to this. So for some athletes, getting to a games might be success. Some, and again, you've worked with, with people like this, it's multiple. They want to win. They've got that winning habit. And I was like, right, okay, well, we've done it once. Can we do it again? can I open another restaurant and do it in another restaurant? So I thought going from one to two stars is actually really difficult to do. So that would be a bit like you wanting to win a gold medal, 
but in rowing, but you want to also win it and get a gold medal for artistic interpretation. It's actually really, really difficult to do. So what I wanted to do was say, right, let's open another restaurant. Let's get another Michelin star. So I immediately, two years after that, consolidated a bet, bought a restaurant that was 130 miles away from home. I thought, right, let's get another restaurant. So what I had the vision of having multiple Michelin star restaurants across the country, which given the fact of how difficult it is to get one, that's just daft. You know, the only way I could put it to a sporting context would be say, well, I tell you what, I'm going to go to four different games and I want to get a different, I want to get a gold medal in four different sports because what works in Shropshire doesn't work in Bedfordshire and what works in Bedfordshire doesn't work in Berkshire. What people want, the chef, they are interpreted because I can't do it all. I've got to delegate. I've got to manage. I've got to give them the tools. I can't be in four restaurants at seven o'clock on a Saturday night. I can only educate and, and support the guys to do that. So it wasn't, I didn't get that hangover per se or that sense of failure or what next. Actually, for me, it was like, this is a start. And it was always that, it was uber elite. It wasn't one, one star wasn't enough for me. I wanted to do more. I wanted to do, yeah, I just wanted to grow it and do more. One wasn't enough. So this was um, hibiscus in Ludlow, is that right? And and how did, what happened? Uh, basically, I heard it was for sale, and it was it was a two star Michelin restaurant run by a guy called Claude Bossy. And I went out and go, yeah, right, I love it. I've never been to Ludlow. I don't know anything about Ludlow, and I bought a restaurant that was best part of a two and a half three hour drive from home. And I just thought, right, but the main thing is I had the talent. I had the talent within the business and I had a really, really good guy that was working for me who, who had the ability, he could cook a Michelin star meal all day long. So that, that made that decision really easy to do. So I basically drove to Shropshire, bought a restaurant. I think I put a deposit on a credit card, phoned my accountant, said, I've just bought a restaurant. He said to me, you're absolutely nuts. I said, what does the books look like? What does, I said, I don't know. I didn't look at the profit and loss of the business. He said, so what, you bought a restaurant three hours away and you don't know what the books look like? I went, yeah. Because for him, success looked like it was financially viable. For me, I can get a star here because I reckon this business is brilliant and I've got a guy that can do this with the right guidance because I trust this guy 100%. So it was a chap called Will Holland. I said, right, Will, in we go. We're going to get a star for this restaurant. Let's go, bang. And by the time I got home, I registered the name. I bought the business. My, I'd fallen out with my accountant. Yeah, it was as simple as that. But I didn't overthink it, Steve. I just thought, right, we're going to do it. And I just thought the most important thing here is the talent. And I got the talent within the business. We'll do that. And off we went. Yeah. Uh, off we went. And can you give us a conclusion? Uh, yeah, we opened the restaurant and it was profitable fairly quickly on. And then it got a mission star 14 months after it opened, I think. So it was job done. But the problem, the problem then came was I started to believe my own hype a little bit. So I thought, well, I've done it once. I've done it twice. I tell you what, let's do it again. So then I bought another one. And <laughs> there was a restaurant over in Bedfordshire called Paris House. And it was a tricky job because it was owned by, the, it's on the estate of the Duke of Bedford. So the Duke of Bedford's a, a very, very, very wealthy landowner. And it was a restaurant set within 16 acres. And historically, it had been a starred restaurant that had been run down over many years. And it was trading on its farmer's glory. So we took that. And I put, do you remember early on in this this ramble of mine, I told you about the guy that turned up at my back door. And I, yeah. I put this guy in, Phil. Wow. And I said, Phil, I've got a place for you, mate, because Phil was intelligent. He didn't have the artistic flair that Will had, but Phil was smart. He was a very different chef. Will 
was organised, disciplined. He had artistic flair. Will's probably, Will Holland is probably the most rounded chef I've ever worked with because he's technically brilliant, he's creative, and he's bloody organised. And those traits, Phil was very organised and very intelligent. So I put, I put Phil into this place. And uh, it was a tricky deal to do because we were doing negotiating with the Duke of Bedford on property, and that was hard. And we basically did a deal on it, and it got a Michelin star within seven months of opening. Unheard of. So at that point, we had three restaurants, all operating profitably, all with Michelin stars, all outside London. And it was like this was a little golden area. And then I thought, right, let's open another one. And that's when things started to get a bit tricky because if I cut a very, very long and boring story short, we expanded, we changed the structure of the business. And before I knew where we were, we had six properties and we had lots of people and lots of grief. And I should have stopped at three. And I, the problem was we, 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 as a business, we grew the business. The decision-making process went to board level as opposed to me doing it quite intuitively. Again, that, that can be good and bad with that. And maybe just some of the decisions we made, the business was over-engineered. Again, probably too much cost involved in infrastructure and not enough on day-to-day management. And we made a few really rash decisions, again, believing our own hype. Again, what's the difference between confidence and arrogance? And we got to that arrogance thing. Is We can get that to work there and we hadn't actually done a due diligence on a few businesses so we got three businesses two that lost money and one that was just a heartache for for political reasons and then at that point the business started to to to, to go a bit tricky but three restaurants three mission stars me at the helm at one will holland at another and then phil at the other and i would i would spend my time 50 percent at one 25 25 but empowerment they were the boys were brilliant day-to-day management of the business, uh, 100% trustworthy, on the same page. and But it was when we stretched beyond that that things started to go wrong. But I was greedy, Steve. Uh, one, if I'd stayed with what I was good at, was that core one-to-one, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. I'd probably still be happily running a restaurant, cooking with the kids sleeping above it in the office. That's a phenomenal story. But, but also, I suppose, a bit like, Overextending yourself there a little bit, yeah, um, and stretching yourself, finding actually we that maybe we've lost touch with some of our core principles. Was that the start of you then falling out of love with it? What yeah, happened? yeah, I lost control. I lost control uh, intellectually. I, I lost control emotionally uh, of the business, and I, I could just see it unraveling. And the thing that I loved was the process. I love the process of being creative. And, and those decision-making processes were taken away from me just to the nature of the business. And that's where it came from, really. Um, I did. I overextended myself. But, you know, textbook, if we do this, if we just do a bit more of this, then we'll get that bit better. You know, so multiple restaurants, you've got economy of scale. You've got group purchasing. You've got infrastructure within the team. You know, you can, you can, in theory, you know, you can put HR in one place. You can put finance in one place. You can move stuff about. You know, you buy for six restaurants. It's far more efficient than buying for one. But, you know, we lost the thing that I loved, which was the control and that spontaneity, and you know that 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 being on the ground and that camaraderie because you can't have camaraderie with six businesses you know i knew everybody when i had one or two businesses i knew everybody 
without a, like inside out. I knew everybody in the business. I knew everything about them. We were mates. We were friends. We'd go out in the piss together. We'd have days off together. We, we'd do everything together. And then you lost it. So we lost that connection. And as you know yourself, with any high-performing team, it's that connection that actually makes it so often work. Very, very rarely do a group of, of individuals form a good cohesive unit and what we had was individual businesses that were trying to work together and it just didn't quite work and that was me falling out of love with it and you know what then happened was because the leader of the business per se didn't have that same laser line focus the guys within the business could smell it and that apathy then started to you know because if i was compromising why shouldn't they it was a bit like you can be a positive leader, but you can also be a negative leader. And I think I probably, because I fell out of love with it, I probably became negative within that business. And it all unraveled fairly quickly, to be honest. You know, the business the business went bust um, for a number of reasons. But at the end of the day, we lost control of the finances. And that probably came down to, you know, me exiting the business and that that environment altogether because I didn't want to I didn't want to compromise I didn't want to be in a I'd rather get out of it whilst I still had my professional integrity is we still had Michelin star we had eight, uh, four four A rosettes you know we still were up there I didn't go to get a position that I was having to run it on a skeleton staff and suddenly you lose your star because that for me would have been catastrophic I'd rather quit whilst it was at its peak colour from a culinary perspective and then just walk away. And that's what I did. Literally walked away. All right. Wow. Okay. So quite a stress response in some ways of, right, let's, let's fly out of here. Let's, let's, let's leave it rather than uh, fall from grace. And I, I tend to sort of think actually a lot of, a lot of Olympic athletes that, that, that try again, you don't remember them for that. You don't remember say Denise Lewis at the 2004 Olympics or Daley Thompson at, in in two, in 1988 when they tried again but they didn't quite win. Yeah. Um, but but you, for you it was a case of no stop while I'm ahead. Absolutely, that was it. That was it. I I I didn't want to be in a position of compromise and success looked. I had a very very clear vision of what success looked like for me as a chef and a businessman. And as I wasn't, I don't believe I was able to maintain that. I was out of there. I was out. It was no. I didn't even give it a second thought. As soon as my mind was made up, I was out of there and I didn't want to come back and become an also run. I didn't want to do that. And it just was of no interest to me at all. It didn't even enter my mind for a single second to be in a position of compromise or dumbing down what we were doing. It was it was all or nothing. And that was it. Right, bang, gone, out the door. And it was as simple. It was as simple as that. It was, and I don't regret that for a second because I, I think I'd fallen out of love with it. And what I didn't want to be known as, and even for myself, I didn't want to be known as someone that half-assed it. I've never been good at half-assing anything, and I felt I was getting to a point of half-assing it because I just didn't love it. Didn't want to do it anymore. Didn't want to do the hours. Didn't want to put in the commitment. Didn't want to be that that person anymore. I just didn't want to do it. Mm. And then that was it. Bang out of there. Simple as that. It's an interesting one in terms of just you protecting your external reputation and that being a, a key driver. Did you have did you have something to throw yourself into? Was that when you started your duathlon career? Uh, no, I'd, I'd started running and cycling uh, sort of late. I went in my late thirties just as a bit of a sanity check, you know, just to keep myself from falling apart because work was pretty stressful. 
Uh, no, it wasn't. I didn't. I didn't have anything. I had no idea what I was going to do. I just had a breakdown of my second marriage. You know, I was pretty consistent in that. The trail of devastation was following me about the place, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So essentially, what I did for the best part of a year was I trained shitloads. I was doing about twenty hours a week. I trained lots, got real fit. Um, I, I did some work for a dog charity. I started fostering dogs, which is kind of like. Yeah, let's do that. That was kind of quite a cool thing to do. So I used to rehome dogs, foster dogs, and just like train. And I'd get like these wild dogs that come in, and I'd like take them out for like a two-hour run and break them, and then so, sort of uh, sort them out, you know, and then rehome them. It was it was <laughs> so like they were more more obedient after you've just taken them for a two-hour run. <laughs> I tell you one thing, Steve. You could fall, you could solve a lot of social problems if you got all these tearaway kids and ran the little buggers for two hours a day. They wouldn't be out because there'd be no vandalism, there'd be no petty crime because they'd be too tired. So I used to get criminal dogs and run them 50, 50, 80 hours, 50, 80 miles a week, sort them out, and then rehome them. So I, I worked for a husky yeah, charity, right. and then um, and then what happened was. Um, I just kind of had a moment that I thought there's a, there was a missing link in sport that I was out at the uh, the European Duathlon Championships and I was there, there racing as an age grouper. I won it, by the way. Gun to tape. Fun 13, part. 14, 15, yeah. Go yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, good. I was going well. And then um, and there was uh, an elite squad there that were there from British Triathlon. So it was a lottery-funded group and it was, it was really good to see. So they were staying where I was staying and it was great. They had a coach and they had a mechanic and a physio. But then the night before the race they were just left to their own devices to eat. And I thought, oh, they're actually missing a trick here. And I remember seeing one particular young athlete who came second by the the the, the breath, you know, the thickness of his tri-suit, but he'd eaten like a massive pizza the night before. So I thought, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up a business called Performance Chef. Is actually looking at the practical application of what food looks like. Because I thought, well, you shouldn't be eating that before a race. He's only racing for 50 minutes. He doesn't need 1,500 calories of pizza. And... Uh, then, by absolute chance, um, connected with Gwen Jorgensen, a Rio Olympic triathlon champion. In 2015, I started giving her and her husband a little bit of advice, went and spent some time with them. And then just kind of, that's how I got into that environment because I went out and I spent some time with their group and I loved the vibe. It was this high-performance environment. It was these load of kind of, it was like, there was, I think, about 12 athletes in that group from all over the world, Chile, Canada, uh, Australia, America, up in northern Spain, so in the, a place called Vitoria, which is almost as grim as Reading. And this was their high-performance environment that they had, and they were all there for excellence. That was why they were there. There was a group. And I just loved that. High, I could see so many parallels between restaurants and culture and mindset and winning mindset and teamwork, and I just loved it. I'd, I'd not... I'd run for Scotland as a youngster. Like I'd run, I ran sort of 29 minutes for 10K as a young lad. So I'd had a, a brief glimpse into elite sport. But again, as you know yourself, late elite sport in the late 80s is very different to how it is now. Um, it wasn't really elite sport. It was just you got a vest and ran about a muddy field. There was no support infrastructure, so to speak. And I really liked that environment. And then we, then that's how it moved into working with athletes. I just thought, you know what? I've got a bit of knowledge of, of, of how to cook food um i've got a bit of a knowledge of sport let's do that and i had no idea or vision of what i was going to do to be honest steve i just wanted to work with nice people i didn't want to work but also have that freedom and that autonomy to do my own thing really so there was no plan i just wanted to get out of it 
you know, I just that was it. And then then got in touch with Gwen, worked with Gwen, and that was that was kind of my first real glimpse into truly world class mentality. Like she didn't, there was nothing that Gwen Jorgensen didn't do for a reason. Nothing, sleeping, eating, everything was that laser line focus of what she wanted to do. But again, she knew what success looked like for her. And if you, um, her her sister wrote a really good book. Um, I think it's called Go Gwen Go, and it talks about the family's journey from her as a youngster. And it's really interesting. They talk about, I think, in London Olympics, she qualified for London off the back of one race, and then came thirty seventh. Right. So for most athletes, qualifying for for an Olympic Games would be amazing. She came 37th. That was it. That was a disaster. That was not what success looked like from her. And her mindset was she wanted to become the best athlete in history, which she, you know, over WTS, she is the most successful athlete there's ever been. You know, longest winning streak. You know, she was unbeatable in her pomp, completely and utterly unbeatable. But her mindset was nuts, mate. Honestly, it was you know, she didn't, she just, the process that she put in to winning, I loved it. I absolutely got it. It was no different to, it was, it was, it was no different to when I set up a restaurant. It goes, right, this is the goal. And these are all the bits I need to do to get there. You know, she had the, she had her husband, Pat, who was doing everything for her. She had a brilliant squad that she used. She used that squad to facilitate her. You know, she had stronger swimmers. She had stronger runners. She had stronger cyclists. But collectively, they made Gwen the athlete she was. And I just love the fact she put together that infrastructure. That's no different to me getting the best pastry chef to develop the best desserts or the best maitre d' or the best sommelier. She had that infrastructure, and I just I just loved it. I just loved that elite sport environment. And it was, it was a breath of fresh air for me because you could still apply those winning mindsets. I hate that. That's a real wanky term. But that those mindsets of excellence, I could still apply those but in an environment of which was it was all fresh, it was all new, but there was still that comfort of of excellence. And, you know, I still see it now is, you know, when you go in and, you know, you see young athletes and you just think, you know, trying to get this squad together is absolutely no different to, you know, getting a group of young chefs to deliver. It's no different. You know, they've all got a bit of baggage. They've all got this raw talent. You've all got carrot and stick required. And I, I really, I just... The, I, I just laugh sometimes when I look at groups of elite athletes and go, Jesus, they're just a bunch of pirates, you know what I mean? And you can't get them all on the ship, all going in the same direction. And I, I just, I, I really enjoy working with people who aspire to excellence. However that looks, like excellence could be, could be finishing a race. It could be winning a race. It could be winning a medal. It doesn't, I, I just like people who want to be the best they can be. Hmm. That's, that's something I really enjoy working with. Okay, that's really interesting from the point of view that you're, um, you're taking that leap into a different world, but seeing so many of the connections and that that bridge, that connection is something that we really value, certainly in the t- sorts of people that we have on the podcast. Um, can I assume to a certain extent that actually what you were required to do in terms of nutrition advice, creating dishes and so on, actually returned to some some real basics um, oh, oh absolutely i had to put my ego my my culinary ego on the back burner you know because at the end of the day you know i when when i was if you'd come to my restaurant steve as, as a paying customer um it would all be about wow i can't do this at home this is completely unachievable i don't know how he gets that level of flavor wow look at the presentation it was making it unaccessible you know it was just like wow because there's nothing worse than going to a restaurant we've all been there you know what i could do better than this at home 
mm-hmm. especially for me it's it's a nightmare you know I, I hate eating out because it's always you know what we cook better than that every day at home it went a complete flip that what we wanted to do was get people do being able to achieve everything and go, oh my God, this is really simple. This is really easy. So I went from almost poacher to gamekeeper in a, in a mindset thing that I want to, as opposed to you coming to the restaurant, I've got no idea how he done that, to going, Christ, that's really easy to understand. So okay. that that was, but you were getting the same end result because success was people were enjoying your food. They were just enjoying your food for a different different reason. So, you know, if you look at an athlete's perspective, you know, if they're going out to train, you know, get them to do a really easy birch and muesli. If it's 50 grams of oats, 50 grams of Greek yogurt, 100 milliliters of apple juice or milk, depending on the training they're doing, a pinch of cinnamon. It's got complex carbs. It's got protein. It's got fat. It's got slow release or quick release carbohydrate. It tastes good, but it's also fit for purpose. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting then. So your edge, the thing that you can offer that's that's absolutely unique, besides the fact that you've been there and done it and created this fine dining for at the the top end of of um of catering and that's not the right term is it catering is not the right term mm, loosely i suppose yeah yeah i suppose well, K- f- uh, yeah food food yeah food <laughs> let's dumb it down completely yeah. sorry it just didn't sound right catering just sounded like trolleys of scones yeah um so um what's the talk what's going to oh, yeah your offer uniquely is because i remember when i've gone on training camps is that I remember someone saying, I can't remember this was now, up at altitude where everyone was broken, and and someone just saying, oh, like eating is like the fourth workout of the day, where it's a chore. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what you potentially can add is just that, oh, well, I've finished training now. I, I'm almost too tired to eat, but actually I'm looking forward to eating now. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that, that I think, what's been key, and, and we've seen it time and time again, whether that's at competitions or at camps, or even with prior, even with private individuals that we work with is, is it's making sure that that it's that, that they're not only getting the macros but they're getting them delivered in a way that's actually tasty and it's interesting and texture and you know as an athlete yourself if you're wearing a two-week training camp there's only so much rice and chicken you can eat so it's just making it interesting because at the end of the day you know you've got to look at the human beyond the athlete and you know you could be a, a really amazing sports scientist and say well they need x y and z of this what i will try and do where possible using my limited knowledge is say okay well let's give them x y and z but let's make it taste really 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 good you know let, let's add this that ever but then it's also not being afraid to change things and i remember uh, i was on one this is a good it's, a, it's an interesting story we were on one camp and I had a very heated debate with uh with a with a sports scientist that we'd been out and it was I think it, it was the third three-day block of a training camp so it was three days on a day off three days on a day off and three days on then home and it was the last block and and it was pissing down the rain and, and the guys had been out and done I think they'd done a gym and a three-hour ride they'd done a four-hour ride with intervals and then they were doing five hours with intervals and it was pissing with rain. So it was like five hours, dirty roads, covered in mud. And because it was the last three-day block, the guys had been out and they'd been taking on about 80 grams of carbs per hour on the bike in beta fuel. So like really sugary stuff. So they were full because they were battered and they had to fuel the ride. It was a really hard ride. And I did them like a pasta bake with smoked bacon and cheese. We just needed to get food in them that they were eating. And I remember then she's like, I oh, can't give them that. I said, we've got to get the guys to eat. Because if I give them grilled chicken with plain rice and a little salsa on the side, an hour later, they're going to be having a Haribo and Pringles. 
you're, you're absolutely deluded if you think that this is going to be fit for purpose. The guys, are, look at them. You know, they've got black bags. They've got grit in the teeth. That You know, they're, they're wrecked. Just get calories in them. Give them food that's interesting and challenging to work with. And, you know, I think that's the main thing is you've got – sometimes people forget that, that people's responses to food – is emotional, it's human. Some people use food as a punishment. Some people use it as a reward. Um, and that's what I try to do where possible. Make it tasty and make it relevant, but also never forget that you're dealing with humans. And if you've got eight athletes, every single one of those athletes is going to have a different attitude towards food completely. And it's just having, again, the intelligence to deal with that. It's, again, no different to the restaurant. People are coming to your restaurant, a table of six, you know, they're all going to be there for a slightly different reason, you know, and it's the same with the athletes. You know, some are maybe, you know, they've gone out and they've been brilliant. They go, you know what, I'm going to have that today because I feel really good. Um, but it's also, there's there's a lot of learned behavior within that as well, Steve. You know, you, you see sometimes it's monkey see, monkey do um, with athletes as well as if one rider's doing something or an athlete's doing something, then they'll do it. That's not necessarily the best thing for them. So, yeah, it's... It's a, it's a reasonably interesting space um, to work in. Um, but again, it's all about getting people to enjoy your food and making sure the food's fit for purpose. In the restaurant world, it's always about doing stuff that you, you're you trying to blow people's mind. You're trying to make it interesting and intriguing. In, in the sports world, for me, it's all about making it interesting and intriguing, but also making it fit for purpose. And, and you know, that that's something I really enjoy doing. Um, you know, just being intelligent about it. Mm, love that, and and so just finally then, Alan, what's what's next? Where where are you taking performance chefing? Well, you know what, we obviously we're at strange times at the moment. We're 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 dealing with quite a lot of athletes one to one at the moment. You know, because obviously people are quite often working in isolation, so we're trying to work with a number of athletes um, ahead of whatever happens next year. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen in elite sport. Um, but the one thing that we are doing is we're just developing uh, a new concept. We've, we're building a new kitchen at home to do a lot of online content. So what I'd really like to do is, is as opposed to being in front of people directly, is to have like almost like a database of recipes. So if you say, look, I'd really like to know how to do high-protein meals or I'd really like a load of energy snacks or I'd really like to know how to do basics is to create content that can be downloadable so you've got a resource because at the moment, social media and the, the internet is a great platform for many, many things. But I think for food, it's really, really dangerous because there's there's a hell of a lot of amazing inf- you know visuals out there. There's a lot of influencers, which is a great thing. But if as an athlete, you're following a meal plan that's been set by an influencer who's on 1500 calories a day, who looks like they need a good meal themselves. That's a really, really dangerous thing. You know, you've got to mm-hmm. be able to fuel your performance. And I think as, because our, it's athletes is what we do, you know, wh- however you determine an athlete. Um, so I, I think there's probably an opportunity to do something that's a bridge between the actual sports science of the 1.2 grams of protein per kilo of body weight type mindset. Cause nobody knows what that looks like. You know, walking around. You know, does a does a does a neo pro cyclist know what one point two grams of protein looks like when they're walking around Tesco's in the in the bib shorts? No, and um, and then also the the influencers that do pretty pictures. And I think what I'd like to try and do is get some sort of mar- marriage between the two of those. Is do food that not only looks good, tastes good, but also works for athletes. Um, and we're we're learning lots about it as well. So that that's what's next is we, we were looking at developing online content 
that is just going to be a little bit more interactive than a physical book and a little bit more informative than, you know, a, a static shot on Instagram per se. But we know for a fact that there's like a demand for more information and about, about real food. But I think, yeah, real food and education, really. Amazing. Sounds, uh, sounds incredible. Uh, I can't wait to tune in. It sounds, sounds like a, an amazing resource to, um, to allow people to, to, to make that connection to think, actually, this might be achievable for me. Um, well, listen, mate, it's been fascinating to get a glimpse into a completely different world, but so many parallels and so many uh, connections. And you've obviously got that connection with your sport and, um, and Michelin star credibility and expertise and experience there intense to hear about it actually um but incredible to hear how you've been reflecting on it all so i'm i'm gonna go off and sort my wooden and metal spoons out because i'm a bit ashamed from that first comment (laughs) and and i'm gonna go and buy a safe for my chocolate so it's been been a real pleasure steve and i I do I, i like to read a lot and i like i like to look at other areas of excellence and I know I'm constantly learning. So I'll, you know, anything like this is is really enjoyable to do because, you know, I I do enjoy working in elite sport and I also enjoy with people that just want to better themselves as well. You know, Um, you know, one of of my favorite people that we ever work with is, and it's a a lovely little story to finish on because people, Oh, do you only, you know, only work with elite athletes? I get satisfaction about anybody that wants to progress. And a while back we had this lady approaches and she'd just been made redundant. And she was a, a lovely lady who was in her 50s and she'd, she'd never been sporty, never been sporty at school, didn't have any of that legacy stuff. And she said, I'm going to spend my redundancy money on a time trial bike and I want to break an hour for 25 miles. Wow. And I was like, ah, right, OK. You know, what have you done before? Nothing. Right, OK. Mm. So she went and bought a Cervelo, went and bought a Cervelo P5 as you do, and then bought an Endura skin suit and went and did some, did a bike fit. And uh, I said, right, we'll only do, I'll do this, but we need to do your food and we need to do your coaching and we'll, we'll help you with this. And we got this rather lovely frumpy lady who'd been made redundant and blew all her money on a bike. And last year she did 58.40 for 25 miles. And do you know what? It was one of the most satisfying, I hate the word journeys because everybody's on a journey, but it was one of the most satisfying journeys, I'm saying this in inverted commas, that we'd ever been part of because she you know she she just loved the process she loved the, the 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 little details you know she she'd eaten beetroot for the first time you know we got her doing all sorts of really funky things she goes what's this quinoa stuff that you're going on about and it was just <laughs> yeah it was really lovely to be part of it and it was just like and my partner vicky was was there with her when she uh, went and broke the hour but you know 58 minutes for 25 miles it's not hanging about but it was just lovely to put apply that process to a complete amateur who just trusted you, uh, trusted you with um, with the investment they made. Because I always talk about the emotional and personal investment that people make in delivering a, delivering a performance. And her investment was no different to the investment that all these world-class athletes made. It was just very different. You know, she, she put the time and energy in. And to, for her to get the result that she was looking for, what success looked like for her – and to be part of that, you know what? It's really lovely. It's really, really lovely to be Love part. That. It was, it was just great. Jam it, amazing. Blow all your redundancy money on a Cervelo. Just <laughs> nuts. It was absolutely nuts. And it was just, yeah, yeah. So it was good. So I, I, we like being part of people that want to invest in themselves. So that's the main thing, Steve. 
Brilliant. Love that story. Fantastic. Great to great to finish on that, Alan. So thank you so much for joining us. Happy days. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. You can follow Alan on Twitter at Alan Murchison and on Instagram at performance.chef. His website is also performancechef.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and support underscore champs. Do check out our LinkedIn and Instagram pages, Supporting Champions. If you're looking for some coaching support or some virtual team development, then have a look at supportingchampions.co.uk forward slash coaching hyphen mentoring, where we're supporting teams to a whole new level of their performance supporting individuals to their level of performance and if that's interesting to you then drop us a note at inquiries at supportingchampions.co.uk and you can sign up there for a free consultation to explore which package is right for you